Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Before we get started and before I introduce today's guest, please know that there are trigger warnings for today's episode. We're going to be talking about mental health. We're going to be talking about depression. We're going to be talking about suicidal ideation and how to help someone you know who has suicidal ideation, as well as what to do if you yourself are experiencing suicide thoughts or thoughts that the world would be better without you in it or that people's lives would be easier if you weren't in their lives. I want you to know that it is okay for you to take care of yourself however you need to take care of yourself in this episode. Please feel free to pause and process, to turn it off if you need to, or to just not listen if that is what supports you best. Remember, you are your own authority. Listen to what your needs are, what your feelings are, and make decisions that best support you. And now let me introduce our guest. Today, I'm so excited that Sharice, also known as the existential ginger, has decided to come on the podcast. We're going to be talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, and it sounds like it's really near and dear to hers as well, which is mental health and high-demand religion. We're going to be talking about how religion affects mental health. We're going to be talking about our own experiences. We're going to be talking about how she learned to hold herself through mental health challenges and how she continues to hold herself through that and to keep herself healthy, which I think all of us could use right now in the middle of, you know, a continuing pandemic and all the other chaos that is going on in the world on top of deconstructing religion. So I think that this episode is going to be super fun and we're just going to kind of flow and have a conversation and I can't wait to see what comes up and what we discover and have some fun times together because this is the best getting to talk about hard topics with someone who understands them, but also like can really, it's just, it feels really good to connect with someone. So welcome Sharice. Thank you. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Thanks for saying yes. I was telling her that this feels like a win-win for me. I love having people on the podcast to talk to. So I'm not just talking to my clothes in my closet, which is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally get that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a special kind of, you know, it's a special kind of feeling to know you're talking to people, but you're not. And you're like in a closet with all your stuff. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) But today, I'd like, before we get into things, can you just tell us a little bit about you? She is amazing. She's on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, and I've been following her in all the places, like (laughs) creeping on her content. And I want you guys to get to know her a little bit as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself and um, anything you want us to know about you before we hop into this topic. 
Oh my goodness. I never know where to start with this. So uh, I guess the cliche beginning to my story is that I was born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, aka the Mormons, right? I did grow up in Northern Utah, so right near Mormon Mecca there. And uh, I never really doubted the church. It was always really the only option, if we're being honest. I mean, I certainly developed my own testimony of the doctrine, but uh, yeah, never, never really doubted it, I would say, until maybe like teenage years, some of that cognitive dissonance started to hit a little bit, you know, um, but I, I got married in the temple. Um, I married one of my best friends and we had a very short engagement and, uh, our marriage was not overwhelmingly healthy from the get go, but we stuck with it. And, then we ended up getting divorced um, six and a half years into our marriage. And it was my husband that approached me and wanted a divorce. And the divorce was kind of my catalyst for my deconstruction because um, I had received a very specific priesthood blessing from a bishop telling me that I needed to stay with my husband. We were going to bring children to the earth through our marriage and that that was my divine destiny and my purpose. Um, so I had stayed with my husband and then he said he wanted a divorce and I was very confused because I was like, hold up, hold up. Like there was no other way to interpret this priesthood blessing. Like this was very specific. So either the Bishop didn't really receive that from God or God can't make up his mind. Or like, there's something weird going on here. And so that's what started to unravel for me. Um, and I just dove headfirst into a full-blown existential crisis. Um, <laughs> it was it was bad. I ended up being hospitalized at one point. Um, that was four years ago, a little over four years ago. And, uh, or five years ago. We're in 2022, aren't we? <laughs> oh my gosh. I know the time right now. I feel like I'm in a time warp and I'll be like, no, we, okay, wait. Okay. Those two years just left. Like I thought it was yes. three. No, it's five. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so um, anyways, I mean, there's, there's obviously, this is the cliff notes version of the story, but a, a lot happened in between, but I ended up making the decision to step away from the church uh, which was very difficult because my entire family is still very devout. And then I had an opportunity about a year after I formally left the church to uh, move outside of Utah. And I jumped on it. <laughs> I love Utah so much. If you are live in Utah, I do love Utah. I just, I was single I didn't really, my life didn't really have a clear direction. And this was like the perfect opportunity because I was like, if not now, when? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm so glad that I did because that, that was four years ago, but <laughs> the last four years have been uh, just a roller coaster ride of figuring out who I am and learning to trust myself 
I mean, 10 out of 10 recommend moving 2000 miles away from everything and everyone, you know, as like a crash course in how to get to know yourself and trust yourself. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and also a crash course in trying to figure out who you are again after any kind of emotional or psychological trauma. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So now um, I live in Pennsylvania with um, my boyfriend and my creatures. I have two cats and a dog and I sell beer for a living. So I have gone like full apostate status. It wasn't planned. It just kind of happened this way. But I I like to joke about it because it's like, what's the most ex-Mormon thing I could do career-wise? Let's sell beer. That sounds good. I love that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Between selling beer or like, you know, speaking publicly, I, you're doing both. You're speaking publicly about religious harm and selling beer. So yeah, mm-hmm. you've, yeah, you've embodied One way to, get to outer darkness. <laughs> you've embodied the apostate. You've, you've just owned that personage. Yep. Hey, listen, I, I don't, uh, I don't half ass things. I have to. <laughs> part of our Mormon heritage. You don't have that. It's true. It's so true though. Go big or go home. That's right. Like if you decide to do something, you're going to be the best at it. Right. So if we're going to be apostates, might as well be the best apostates. Right. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Oh my goodness. We're excelling. We're doing good. (laughs) Oh, so, okay. So you, you began to deconstruct because of the divorce and you know, you've been on this wild journey before, but you said that mental health was kind of, there was a dark time in your past. Did that come before or after the divorce? So, I mean, I don't have a black and white answer to that. Mental health has always been a thing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a avid journaler. I have journaled pretty consistently since I was baptized at eight years old, which I'm very proud of myself for sticking with it that long, <laughs> but it's, um, it's very interesting to go back and read my journal entries as a child, because there are blatant signs of anxiety and depression and suicide ideation. And it's so sad because I don't honestly know where that came from. Mm-hmm. Um, initially when I started to pull away from the church a little bit, I wanted to blame the Mormon church for my depression and anxiety. Like they caused it. It was kind of like a nature versus nurture thing, right? Like this was Mm -hmm. taught to me. My brain was wired this way. And I don't necessarily think that that is true anymore. I don't think I can blame the Mormon church for the chemistry in my brain. I don't, I don't know that that's a fair (laughs) assumption. Um, but I think it's certainly, I think that Mormonism primed me to be extra sensitive to anxiety and depression. So I was actually diagnosed formally in my mid twenties and started medication and treatment then. And my divorce was a period of time where I was not taking my prescribed medications as they are prescribed, which obviously is not smart. And so the emotional instability of going through a very accelerated and very contentious divorce 
mixed with me messing around with the chemicals in my brain and different medications was absolutely the perfect storm for just horrible things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like how you say that you can't blame the Mormon church for the anxiety and depression, but it absolutely primed you to kind of let that bloom and blossom. Um, I don't know if you know anything about my past. I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 30. So I went through the people pleasing twenties. Uh-huh. Let me please perfect and perform and try right. to win your love. Uh-huh. And so a very codependent period in my life where I was trying really hard to make everybody like me and then fill that, you know, gap of self-worth. And I went through that very same thing where not at first, because, you know, I spent six more years in the church um, after being diagnosed, but that's what led to my deconstruction was actually Mm -hmm. being diagnosed, going through first CBT therapy and then some EMDR. And my husband's a therapist. So he's a marriage and family therapist and he was getting his master's degree at the time. And he came home and I remember he was like, you know, I'm learning that emotions are neither good nor bad. They just are. And it's like something broke open inside of me. And he started sitting down with me and teaching me like how to know what I was feeling and to label it and then to listen to it. And then I started showing up to church and being like, oh, like this is shame. I'm feeling shame because of this message. Oh, this is fear. I'm feeling fear because of this. Oh, this is guilt. This is, there was so much that was happening there. And so I absolutely agree that I don't think, I think depression has run in my family for a long time. I see markers of it, regardless of whether my family members are Mormon or whether they are evangelical Christian. I have a feeling it has a lot to do with generational trauma, Mm -hmm. but Mormonism definitely exacerbated it in my life, my sister's life, and in my mom's life. So I see those markers of anxiety and depression in all three of us, and they look different Mm -hmm. in the three of us than they do, say, in my mother's sister's their kids' lives, if that makes sense, in evangelical Christianity. And so they still have it, but theirs looks different. So it's been interesting to have those similar genetics and to see, okay, this is a familial thing. Obviously there's something genetic going on here and like yours looks different than mine. Yeah. And the three of us in the family, ours looks really similar and you still have it, but it's different. So yeah. Yes. That definitely, that all resonates with me very much. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because I don't think we can have a conversation about mental health and high demand religion without acknowledging what churches teach about thoughts Mm -hmm. or, you know, because my experience was there was a lot of conflicting messages about like what goes on in my brain in terms of Mormon doctrine. Right. So if it's very binary, so there are good thoughts and there are bad thoughts, there's good feelings, bad feelings. Um, and the good ones are from the Holy Ghost mm-hmm. on behalf of God. They Those are positive. Those are like a yes, a confirmation. And then they can be negative, bad, um, sinful. And mm-hmm. those are all from the adversary, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have this cosmic battle happening in your brain at all times of these two 
entities trying to fight for which way your brain is going to think. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that in and of itself, trying to comprehend that is insane. But then we also get the message of like, oh, well, you can control your thoughts. If you're having a sinful thought or, or an impulse, then you, you can control that, you know, just change the channel in your brain or all of those conference talks of like, you have the power to turn this around. And so for me, growing up with anxiety and depression, not having a language around that, not really knowing what it was, I 100% believed there was something fundamentally wrong and sinful about me because I couldn't just change the channel in my brain. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why. I was like, why is Satan working so hard to keep these thoughts in my brain? And why can't I push them out? Am I not worthy enough? Am I not righteous enough? Okay. It must be because I'm not worthy enough or righteous enough. So I will read my scriptures more. I will go to the temple more. I will pray more. I Mm -hmm. will self-censor what I'm watching on TV and what I'm listening to. And I won't hang out with this friend anymore. Like it just became this checklist of like, if I'm not doing everything to the letter that the church asks me to do, then I'm not going to be able to control my thoughts. Yeah. That resonates so much with me because the perfectionism really started spinning as my mental health deteriorated in my late teens and in my early twenties. and. Yeah. It was a checklist where I was like, okay, what am I doing wrong? Because our brains love a story. They want to make sense of the world. Right. And when things don't make sense, they will create a story. And often the story is somehow I'm doing something wrong or I must be deficient. I must be broken in some way. And so we do all the things to try to fix ourselves and make ourselves worthy or enough in order to make that, you know, to make whatever it is that we've been promised work better And I find that's really when my perfectionism, I always had perfectionism. I can look back at myself as a three or four-year-old and see the perfectionism, the frustration I would get when I couldn't get a drawing to be as perfect as I wanted it to be or to match the vision I had in my head. But really in my late teens and twenties, as I was trying to help myself feel better and feel worthy the perfectionism really took hold because I was, you know, trying to checklist everything. And just that mask got thicker and thicker and thicker until I just felt like I was in a straight jacket and the real me was tied up in knots. And I didn't feel like there was ever a right decision I could make. I just felt really stuck and frozen. Yeah. See, this is why we're kindred spirits because that's right. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) And it's so, it's absolutely maddening. And I think that's why, um, I mean, that's why I ended up being addicted to my medication Mm -hmm. because I got a tiny little taste of like it, not necessarily turning off the anxiety, but putting it at bay. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I got to have more of that. If this shuts that off in my brain, I need more. Yeah. And so it it felt good for a moment. 100%. And I even, I think was like, see, Heavenly Father has provided me with this medication so that I can, you know, tell the adversary to get out of my brain. Like you kind of like gaslight yourself into justifying like whatever the means to the end is. And so, and eventually it just became a coping mechanism to numb myself because I was miserable in my marriage, but was in complete denial about it. I was miserable 
at church, I used to, I used to take adult coloring books to church because I needed something to do with my hands. Mm -hmm. I would get so sweaty, like during relief society and I'd get like very like twitchy and I could never figure out why. And now looking back, I'm like, you idiot. Like you were literally having anxiety. Like your Mm -hmm. body was screaming at you that you were not comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. But you weren't listening because it could never be the church that was the problem. I have to be the problem. (laughs) I love that you brought up that it was in Relief Society where you were getting the sweaty palms. And for those of you listening who are not from a Mormon background, Relief Society is a women's meeting. So it's women Mm -hmm. only. And often the messages, there's a lot of shame and fear wrapped up in those messages. When I talk about being at church and feeling those shame and fear messages, It was often in Relief Society that I was having those experiences because over the pulpit, it's usually a lot more generic. However, there's a lot of misogyny and a lot of guilt and shame about having perfect kids, a perfect house, going to the temple enough, like all the things. And as a perfectionist, it just felt like so much. Excuse me. So I was having panic attacks on a weekly basis. And I was noticing that they were happening most often on Sunday evenings or Monday mornings. And then I would spend the week kind of comforting myself and holding Mm -hmm. myself and working through feelings. And it really wasn't until I started being able to label my emotions and really paying attention where I I mean, that took a couple of years to be able to get comfortable, like recognizing emotions and what they felt like in my body and how I experienced them. So it took me a couple of years to get really proficient at that. But once I did, oh my gosh, I was noticing, okay, I'm getting a dose of what felt like poison on Sunday. And then I'm having to really work through it. And I start feeling really good about Thursday, Friday, Saturday was always an amazing day. And then I would start to feel anxiety Saturday night leading into Mm -hmm. church. And then I would have a full-blown, I would go into a freeze response. Like I would wake up feeling lethargic. I would wake up feeling without energy. I would have headaches. Um, I mean, just so many things would happen Sunday morning before anything had ever happened. And then I'd get that dose of shame or fear or both. And then I'd have to process for another week. So it was insane. Yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense. And it's, it's hard to explain to you. I mean, I, I feel like everyone has a lifelong journey of learning to listen to ourselves and learning to listen to our bodies and what they're telling us, right? There is this kind of learning curve to self-awareness, but I will argue that those of us who participated in high demand religion have even a harder time because we're not taught anything about like intuition. We're not taught anything about self-care, Um, and I know you did like a multi-episode segment on intuition and the Holy ghost. It was mm, chef's kiss. It was beautiful, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) but that is such a hard concept of like, Hey, stop and listen to yourself. And it took me a few years to figure it out too, of like, okay, what is really going on here? What is happening inside my body? What is my body trying to tell me? What is my brain trying to tell me? Because bless our brains. They just want to keep us alive. That Mm -hmm. is their job. Mm -hmm. But the thing is from an evolutionary standpoint, our intelligence has evolved. I mean, exponentially, but our brains, like the organ themselves really have not undergone a lot of changes in the past, like 
hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. So I think that our brains just detect threats and it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it used to be like a saber tooth tiger and now it's a social situation and they're going to react exactly the same because the brain's job is to protect, protect you, keep you alive. Right. And that, and then when you add in trauma and mental illness, that changes our brain, it literally changes brain chemistry. And so your Mm -hmm. brain can't perform its function the way that it's supposed to. So then it just becomes a colossal mess, (laughs) but that's what therapy and treatment and all of that is for. That's right. No, I love that you brought up trauma because you're right. Our brain is there to keep us safe and to help us experience the least amount of pain possible. So not only keep us alive, but help us experience the least amount of pain possible. And I know there are some people listening going, but um, some of the things I did to cope were very, very painful, Mm -hmm. but your brain just decided that pain was less pain than being ostracized from your family or less pain than, you know, whatever else was the alternative. So a lot of us, we engage in painful things, but I like how you bring up trauma because not only does it change our brain chemistry, we literally live in this state of the bad thing is happening right now. And so our brains are always in this heightened sense of awareness of trying to help us avoid unsafety, I guess, help us avoid pain Mm -hmm. or possible death. Right. Um, And so we're, it, it makes sense that we get into anxiety and that we're having panic attacks and that we're doing some of those things because our brain is constantly detecting threats because we haven't, the the trauma is trapped in our hippocampus. So the hippocampus is the part of our brain that timestamps something and says it happened in the past. And especially those of us with CPTSD, when something keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening, the hippocampus never gets to stamp something and say, okay, that was hard but it's in the past and you can go into rest now. So we stay in this heightened sense of awareness because it feels like the threat is still in the present. And that can be the case even after we've begun deconstructing. I have clients that left their high demand religion 20 years ago and are still having triggering responses because they've never moved that trauma out and their body still perceives threat. So Mm -hmm. if you find that you're still having, you know, panic attacks, or you're still being really triggered by random things, that's what's going on is there's trauma trapped in your body and your hippocampus just hasn't had a chance to like stamp that and say that's in the past and we're okay now. We're safe now. Oh, absolutely. And I think one thing that I really had to overcome and learn was that trauma and mental illness aren't logical they're biological. So Mm. we, we try to think our way out of things and situations. And sometimes, you know, bringing in a rational mindset can certainly help, but more often than not, we actually have to feel our way out rather Mm. than think our way out. Mm -hmm. And that's uncomfortable, (laughs) especially when it's not a skill set that you were taught. Um, or a skill set that was demonized. I mean, for sure. It not only was it not taught, like, listening to yourself, listening to your emotions and trusting your own wisdom. I mean, there are scriptures that tell you not to trust your own wisdom. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, and even validating your own anger, we're taught contentions of the devil. You don't want to be angry. 
you don't want, that's a negative emotion and Mm -hmm. suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. Yeah. If we just get curious about it and actually analyze it and peel back the layers and see what's underneath. I mean, anger is normally a secondary emotion. There's usually something else going on underneath, but if we never bother to look, then we're just going to continue to act on the anger without thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anger can be such a great alarm bell. I find anger can help me find a lot of my wounds. I find. Mm-hmm. So when I befriended anger, I was like, okay, you're a very uncomfortable friend because I was taught that you are satanic and devilish and that it means bad things about me if I'm feeling anger. But once I was able to say, okay, you're just an alarm bell. Mm -hmm. There's something, like you said, underneath that I need to look at. And you're kind of pointing me towards that. I've learned so much about myself, my boundaries, what I'm okay with, what I'm not okay with, where my wounds are that need compassion and kindness and like some time to get curious with them. And it's been, it, anger has honestly probably been one of the emotions that's helped me heal the most. Oh, it's super cathartic. (laughs) There's a, um, there's a Buddhist concept. I'm not super familiar, but it's called, um, inviting your demons to tea is what it's referred to as, or, I've heard it talked about in the pagan community as like shadow work Mm -hmm. where basically you are just uncovering your unconscious thoughts and whatever you want to label that or call it. I think that it is really cathartic for sure of just digging a little bit deeper underneath peeling back those layers um, because kind of bringing this full circle to being told that your thoughts are either good or evil. They're either from God or either from Satan. I mean, that was a big part of deconstruction for me is like, no, I'm not in control of my thoughts Mm -hmm. and they don't have to fit in this binary world of good versus evil. Mm -hmm. And we can't always control what pops into our brain. Um, Certainly not the like initial or primary thoughts we can follow it up with a secondary thought that we choose, or we can learn to reframe. And I Mm -hmm. think that's been my niche because especially when it comes to self-sabotaging and self-talk, if you don't reframe the way that you're talking to yourself, especially if it's in a negative light, then it doesn't change, right? We, we will continue to do the same thing. If nothing changes, then nothing changes. (laughs) So that's been the biggest learning process, I think, over the past few years for me. Is learning to reframe. Would you mind walking us through that process? Because I know there are people listening that are like, "Uh, yeah, I'd like to be able to do that. I I don't know how to do that. So how do we do that? Absolutely. Okay. So I'll give, I'll give you a real world example (laughs) that just happened before we hopped on this podcast. So, um, I use affirmations when it comes to reframing affirmations are positive statements that basically help us to challenge or overcome that self-sabotaging, um, particularly in the way that we speak to and about ourselves. Right. So for example, when getting ready to jump on this recording, I was nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, Terry is a big deal. Like she is like a super professional podcaster. 
I am intimidated. I am nervous. Am I going to sound intelligent enough? Am I going to say important enough things? You know, like the imposter syndrome just starts to creep in and I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough. And those are the initial thoughts. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty Mm -hmm. enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not worthy enough. Right. So that those are the things we have to reframe. So I have taught my brain to be like, hold up. I know you said that, but let's, let's counter it with an affirmation. So I literally sat here and was like, I am a badass podcaster. I have important things to say. My voice matters. I am worthy and I am going to rock this recording. And I know for a lot of you listening, you're like, you sound like a moron. And yes, if you don't sound moronic at first, you're probably not doing it right. Do it anyway, because (laughs) you have to live with yourself forever. Like your relationship with yourself is the longest lasting relationship you're going to have. So why not make the way that you speak to and about yourself more positive and affirming? I mean, it certainly makes life more enjoyable. Um, so that is kind of my process of how I reframe. I hope that made sense. That does make sense. And I love it. I like, um, I like thinking of ourselves in different parts. So those thoughts that are really critical and stuff like that, I think of that as messages, like a, it's a part of ourselves that's trying to protect us from additional pain or judgment from others or whatever. We picked up those things usually as children or young adults And it's trying to protect us from humiliation. And so it's well-intentioned, but its messages Mm -hmm. are not very kind. They're, they're very abusive, self-abusive, right? Mm -hmm. So when I can look at that as this is a part that's trying to protect me. And then I, I like how you talked about the affirmations, the way I like to view that as like my best friend part. And what would a best friend say to me if I was about to go on stage or if I was about to go on a podcast or if I was about to do something big and I was starting to say all these things out loud about myself, like I'm not worthy. And just so anyone's listening, it does not matter how much success you attain. I mean, you could publish a billion books. You could have a huge show. Oprah even talks about this. Imposter syndrome is still the thing. Oprah is an example. (laughs) Yeah. Like you could have all the books, the talk shows, you could have a billion dollars. And you would still feel like an imposter. This is something that seems to be a common theme for humanity. Mm-hmm. So just know if you're feeling like an imposter, like, welcome to the club. Like yes. you're human. It's going to yeah. be okay. <laughs> so I had those same feelings interviewing you. I was like, what if I stumble? What if I choke on my spit? Which I have been just, you know, I'm going to edit that out. But you know, what, what if I sound stupid? What if I ask the wrong questions? What if my mind wanders? Like all those things. And yet, if I was saying that to a best friend, my best friend would come in and say, no, like, you are incredibly intelligent. You have important things to say. Will you say them perfectly? No. Do you know everything? No. But what you do have to say is important and valuable, and you deserve to take up space, and that that gets to be good. So I love how you describe that, because I think I think that is the key to that critical inner voice that is trying to protect us, but is doing more harm than good. Right. Well, and then it gets confusing because how do you know which of those voices is your intuition and which one is that critical voice? Cause we all have, like you said, like these different 
channels or aspects to our identities. So um, I feel like most people have heard of the term the highest self, like your, your highest, your best self. Um, I did not coin this phrase, but I prefer the phrase, my favorite self for some mm-hmm. reason that resonates more with me. So whenever there's a thought that I'm like, is this my intuition or is this like shame Sharice that is like imposter syndrome right now? I ask myself, would my favorite self say this? With the version of myself who is the most confident, the most authentic, um, you know, just the most content with existing as herself, say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is usually a dead giveaway of whether it's like your inner critic or it's really your intuition. Oh, I love that. That is such a great tool to pull into your toolkit to ask yourself, would my favorite self say this? And can I just say, I love that you use my favorite self because I have a problem with my highest self as well. So my highest self brings out the perfectionism in me. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I don't like that term. I don't like to use your highest self or even your most authentic self, because I think all of our different selves are authentic to a certain degree. Like they're authentically trying to exist in the world and be safe and accomplish things and all of that. Even our perfectionist self, I think is being authentic. Like I felt like I was being authentic when I was pleasing, performing and perfecting. I was just doing my best to survive and get my needs met. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had, I had a, a listener actually point that out and say, so when you say authentic, what do you mean? And we had this like two month conversation about authenticity. And I was like, you're right. I was being authentic when I was pleasing, performing and perfecting at that time in my life. That was authentic. Oh, absolutely. I I don't look back at my experience as a Mormon and say like, that was really disingenuous of me. No, I was 100% being genuine. I really did. I was all in and I was, that was my authentic self at the time. Now, did I filter myself a little bit? Absolutely. Yes, I did. Am I still learning how to unfilter myself? Absolutely. I am. <laughs> but- mm-hmm. Same, but yes, I agree with you. And I think that's why I'm very picky about words and, and meanings. I think that, I mean, words matter to put it quite simply. So my favorite self, I don't remember where I heard that. I saw it somewhere on the internet and I was like, Oh, like that, that resonates with me. No, that is so good. I love checking in with your favorite self and asking, is this something that version of me would say? Because that version of you may give you warnings about, hey, this feels iffy. This feels a little off because that's what a good friend would do. Or Absolutely. it might be like, no, go for it. Like, what's the worst that could happen? Like, you make a mistake and then you learn from it. That's okay. Go, go, go. So, yeah. Absolutely. All right. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this. And if you don't feel comfortable, you know what? We'll put a trigger warning at the beginning if you do feel comfortable. I want to talk about suicide a little bit. I want to talk about when mental health gets to that point where we start contemplating taking ourselves out of the world and not living anymore because the pain becomes too great. And I know that that's something that you said, you know, has been part of your experience. It's been part of mine as well. So I would love to kind of get into that and talk about anything you feel comfortable talking about. Yes. Um, Yes. I'd be honored. I, 
I think, first of all, there is a lot of obviously stigma around suicidality. It is being talked about more. It is being brought more into the forefront of conversations by celebrities and, you know, national mental health organizations. And that is wonderful. I want it to keep doing that. But I think that we have kind of a narrow definition of what that word means. So if someone is suicidal, they may be thinking like, I want to end my own life, but that is not the only thing that would make a person suicidal. So for me, that thought was never really a conscious thing. Mm -hmm. It was more like being alive is so hard. Mm -hmm. Existing is so hard. I am a burden to everyone around me. I am not enough. Those are the thoughts that drove me to a super, super dark place. It wasn't thoughts of self-harm or anything. And I'm not saying those aren't valid. They absolutely are. I'm saying that it's going to look differently for everyone. And I think that the assumption that someone who's suicidal will only be thinking that one track is untrue. Mm -hmm. I love that you bring up, I hate and love, I guess, (laughs) that you bring up that It's this idea of, I am a burden to everyone. I mean, that really resonated with me, this idea of, I am a burden. And if I weren't here, other people's lives would be easier. Yes. Um, That kind of, I I would start to fantasize almost about what would my loved one's lives be like if they didn't have to deal with me. This was especially true in the middle of clinical depression where I felt like a huge burden. I mean, I had to fly my mother-in-law. I was living in England at the time. My husband had been deployed for 10 months. I was raising a toddler. It was freaking dark there all the time. I was being asked to do a lot of things at church that were beyond my capacity. And because I didn't know how to set boundaries and I didn't know how to say no, I didn't know how to listen to myself. I didn't know how to care for myself. I fell into a really dark place. And then I had to fly my mother-in-law over to watch my child so that I could go seek out mental health help. And I just remember thinking I am a worry to my husband and I'm a mental burden to him. I'm a burden to my mother. My child would be better off with a mom that was happy. Mm -hmm. And I started spending like daydream time kind of fantasizing about what their lives would be like if I wasn't in it. And it was this fantasy that their life would be much, much better without me. So that really resonates. No, I I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I mean, like I said, I I have journaled and I can look back and be like, oh my gosh, I was literally suicidal. Um, But I think especially during my divorce, my entire identity and purpose was wrapped up in being a Mormon wife and potential Mm -hmm. mom. Mm -hmm. And so when that aspect of my identity was taken away, I was like, I literally have no purpose. I literally have nothing. My entire life has been lived to be this person's partner, be this person's companion, grow old with him, raise children with him. Now he doesn't want me. I don't want me either was Mm -hmm. basically my mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's, it's very hard to explain that frame of mind 
to someone that hasn't necessarily experienced it because there really aren't words. It's not something that you, that you can articulate. It's something that you feel. Yeah. And and so I know there's a lot of people that say people who, um, people who are suicidal or succeed at, uh, suicide attempts are selfish. And I do not personally believe that because you really have, if you have gotten to that point, you really have convinced yourself that you are making the best choice for everyone involved in your life. Yeah. It's not a, this is too hard. I don't want to do this anymore because it's hard for me. You have convinced yourself that everybody's lives will go on in a better way without you there. And so I think that point is really important to understand. And I think just a general awareness about your friends and family who maybe have been vocal about like, Hey, I do have depression or, um, I am really struggling right now. I feel like we get so scared that we're going to say the wrong thing, or we're going to be, you were going to offend someone or we're going to overstep. And the likelihood that you are going to say something wrong is there, but I mean, wouldn't you rather say something wrong than not say anything and lose someone? So I think just learning to be like, Hey, is it okay if I check in on you every day? I know that you're going through a hard time and I want to check in on you every day. Is that okay? And maybe even say like, Hey, let's, let's do like a one to five scale. One is like, today is really, really hard. I can't even get out of bed and shower. Mm -hmm. Five is I can go to work and I'm functioning and I can do the tasks of my day and just give me a one to five every day or learning to say, um, Hey, where's your mind at right now? What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about these things? I, I don't feel like we're comfortable asking those questions to the people close to us. And the reality is like, I mean, we kind of should be, it's okay to check in on people and you should check in on people. And I know, um, I always see the national suicide hotline being shared everywhere and I, I love it. I've utilized that hotline. So by all means, please keep sharing it, keep it, keep it public. But I do think we have to be more involved than just that. I do think that we need to check on our people and make sure they're okay. And again, like it is nerve wracking because you're like, what if they're not feeling that way and they take it super offensively that I've asked them this question or something. Mm -hmm. And there's always that possibility. But again, the people in my life who have checked in on me even when I'm feeling fine and I just maybe haven't like texted back or forgot to get back to them or something. And they're like, Hey, I need to hear from you that you're okay. And if you're not okay, that's fine. But I need to hear from you. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm not offended. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, thanks for checking in on me. I'm sorry. (laughs) I feel bad that I didn't respond because I made you worry, but I'm so glad that I have people in my life who are willing to go beyond their own comfort to make sure I'm okay. Yeah. I think so often what happens is we tiptoe around like what we consider fragile conversations. This, Mm -hmm. this happens with grief. This happens with leaving high demand religion. This happens with 
the loss of a spouse. This happens with divorce. It's like we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing that we don't say anything and it leaves people feeling more isolated and more like people don't care. And I mean, it's that is such a dark place to be in when you're already feeling like you're alone in this hurricane of negative emotion and feeling like you are a burden and you've started telling yourself like people don't want to talk to me because I'm negative. I bring down all the conversations people are worse around me. That's why they're avoiding me. And then not reaching out just feels like a confirmation of that, that people don't actually want to be with you. And you withdraw further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so before long, you have convinced yourself that no one cares. You're all alone. And at that point, suicide feels like just a continuation of what you're already experiencing. Mm Mm-hmm. So you take that that separation as, yeah, they want to be away from me and they they want no contact. And so I'll just, you know, maybe I'll just make that easier on them, take their guilt away so that they don't at least feel guilty that here I am alive and we're, we don't have a relationship. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up grief because I think the two are very related. Um, and I think again, our our culture just is not equipped to deal with these types of things. We consider the baseline of anyone's emotional bandwidth to be happiness. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not a thing. Sorry. Um, and so anything other than that baseline, we're just like, ooh, mm, yeah. don't know what to say, super uncomfortable, probably just not gonna say anything. Um, and I get it. I mean, even having experienced a lot of these things, I still like when a friend is going through a really, really horrible time, I have to remind myself like, okay, what did you need to hear? Or what did you need done when you were in a similar position? And so again, I, everybody means well. Um, I think the intentions are always good behind statements like, let me know if you need anything. But um, as someone who has lived in rock bottom for a little bit I had no idea what I needed Mm -hmm. I had no idea I would not even be able to tell you Mm -hmm. I couldn't get out of bed I didn't shower for weeks I did not know what I needed so I think again this takes a little bit of awareness and you don't want to overstep boundaries certainly but in my experience just show up Mm -hmm. if you live close literally just show up hey Looks like your di- your sink is full of dishes. I'm going to wash them for you. Mm-hmm. Where's your vacuum? <laughs> hey, I'm going to take your kids to a movie. Like anything like that. Or if you're not close, just, hey, I'm going to DoorDash you some food tonight. Do you have a specific restaurant that you want to pick from? Oh, tonight's not good. Okay, what about tomorrow night? Mm-hmm. And again, like you don't need to overstep boundaries and be overly pushy, but I can't even tell you like the people that just showed up for me and just like came to my door like hey I thought you maybe could use a cookie and I thought I'd vacuum while I'm here because I need something to do I would burst into tears and just be like thank you Mm -hmm. I because I I honestly don't even tell you what to do I mean I was in the depths of despair having to move out of my house that I didn't want to move out of I had nowhere to go and this divorce is accelerating and 
you know, I, I love that Mormons do community well because they really do. And I just remember the Relief Society president texting me and being like, what do you need? What can we help with? And I was like, I, I don't know. You're like, don't give me that mental load. I don't know. Yeah. I was like, I have no idea. And I mean, my whole brain was focused on like the macro level things of like, well, I have to move out of my house. I have to find somewhere else to live. I have to box up all my stuff. And there's all these pictures of me and my soon to be ex-husband. And I don't want to look at them, but like, how do you articulate that to someone? So, Mm -hmm. um, there were some wonderful ladies in my ward that literally just showed up with boxes and they're like, we're just going to start packing stuff and you can go through it later. And again, burst into tears. I was like, thank you. Fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that would be my advice is just show up however you're able to show up, whether you're geographically close or not. And I, I don't know, just keep insisting. Like I said, I know I keep coming back to like, don't violate boundaries, but I do feel like that's important if someone has said like, no, I don't need anything. But usually um, when you're in that frame of mind, you need a lot. You just don't know what you need. You can't, you can't figure it out. Well, that's part of the problem too, is the burden, the mental burden is so huge that your body has gone into freeze. That's the reason you're laying in bed. That's the reason you're not doing anything is you're in that dorsal vagal nerve where it's literally about conserving energy and protecting your vital organs and your body energetically shuts down. And it's, it's like, there's so much to think about and so much to sort through that your body's like, you know what we're going to do? Like, that's too painful. And that's too much. That's overwhelmed. It's like when a computer crashes, there's so much going on. The computer's just like, and we're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I love that you brought up boundaries because we can always ask consent, right? Like I Absolutely. really need something to do. I'd love to come over and, or, you know, just showing up at the door. I really need something to do. I'm kind of bored today. Can I vacuum? Could I do your dishes? Could I make you a casserole? Could I make you, you know, could I make you something? Casseroles vary from my Mormon past. I wouldn't yes, make anyone I a totally casserole. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> I would never make anyone a casserole anymore. Sorry, you're not going to get any casseroles from me because I just don't do cream soups anymore, like gross. So, but I'll, I'll make you something else that will be yummy. So, but showing up and saying, this is what I would like to do. Does that feel like, does that feel supportive to you today? Is today a good Mm -hmm. day? And making it like, and I love that that person came and said, while I'm here, I want to vacuum. I need something to do today. It made it feel It was about them. It wasn't about me suddenly. And I wasn't like, oh my gosh, my house is disgusting. I'm so embarrassed. Which can add that additional shame. And yes, but they were literally just like, where's your vacuum? I'll vacuum. I need, you know, I've got all this pent up energy. And I was like, thank you because I can't even get myself in the shower, let alone clean my house. Absolutely. Well, and if it's between, I just want to say, if it's between doing nothing and risking showing up and possibly, like doing it in the wrong way, show up and do it in the wrong way and yep. learn from it. Allow yourself to be open to, they might not receive it well, or maybe this will make it a little bit worse, but I showed up, show up, mm-hmm. learn from the experience and continue to show up and learn until you find something that works for the person that you're actually trying to help. So yeah. A hundred percent. Um, And I feel like I keep giving examples of like, if you live near the person, but 
it can even be as simple as like, hey, do you feel like watching a movie tonight? There's this like really cheesy looking rom-com on Netflix. What if we start it at the same time and like text each other? Like Mm -hmm. those types of things go a long way. I know it sounds silly, but just anybody that's willing to help take your mind off the ginormous load that you're carrying goes a very long way. Yeah. Well, and I know when I was having suicidal ideation and even, you know, when members of my family were having suicidal ideation, something that was really helpful is people that would just text me and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you, or I was doing this. And it made me think of that time that we did this together. So just letting the person know you're on my mind, you're important to me, you're part of my history. I have great memories of you. And even reminding them of the great memories, because when you're in that spiral, the negativity bias is so strong. Everything is tinged with negativity. It's so difficult to look at anything that's beautiful, positive, or uplifting. It's There is no space for that because you're in survival mode. And that's what negativity bias is all about. It's about protecting us and keeping us safe. And so that's our ancestors gave more validity to the negative because that's what kept us safe from saber-toothed tigers. Exactly. (laughs) It's what kept us safe from the poison berries and, you know, all of those things. And we do the same thing today. Our brains really pay attention to the negative. And when we're in that spiral of everybody would be better off without me, we are looking for the negative. Our brain is looking for the negative as a way to insulate us and keep us safe. And so even just being that voice that texts or calls and just says, Hey, I was thinking about you today. I was at the mall. I saw this shirt. It reminded me of you. Do you remember that time when we were at the beach and you bought that weird shirt and we laughed our heads off? So just reminding people that you do care and you do think about them and they're not isolated and they're not alone. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. I think that's huge. And even just shooting someone a text message, just like, Hey, you're super loved. Mm -hmm. Those kind of statements are, can make the biggest difference between a really good day and a really bad day. Yeah. So I definitely agree with that. Fantastic. One other thing I want to bring up about suicidal ideation is that if someone shares with you that they wonder if the world would be better without them alive or that they're thinking about taking their life or whatever, take it seriously. Yes, please. Um, I think my family and I learned some very important lessons with, um, warning signs Mm -hmm. and one of the biggest warning signs that we've all looked back on is I gave my antidepressants and my anti, uh, anxiety medications to my mom and said, I don't trust myself with these. Will you please give them to me every day. Give me my dose every day. And looking back, we're all like, that was the point. That Mm -hmm. was the point that things really started to go downhill. Um, And I mean, maybe that wouldn't be the case for everyone, but certainly for for me, that was when I was like, I literally can't even trust myself anymore Mm -hmm. because it's gotten that bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know we've directed a lot of this conversation to if someone you love is in that position, But if you are in that position, certainly know, I know it sounds cliche, but know that you're not alone. Know that there is absolutely no shame in asking for help. 
um, know that you are not a burden and that there are people that love you and want to support you, even if they don't know how to vocalize that. And there is so much life left for you to live. You have no idea. I get really choked up when I think back on all the things that I would have missed. Um, all of the people that I wouldn't have met, all the places that I wouldn't have seen. And I'm so grateful that I am still here. And so if you are struggling, um, just know that your struggles are valid and you have support, but stay with us, please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For people who feel like they don't have support, let's say they've gone through religious transition and it feels like they've lost their entire community. I know that there are high demand religions that actively support shunning. And it can feel like you lose like literally no contact with family or with community. What do you recommend? Are there online resources that you feel people can turn to? What would you recommend if someone found themselves in that situation and suicidal ideation was prevalent and they had no community to turn to? Oh, my heart just breaks for people in that situation. Um, I feel like the obvious answer is if you do have the ability and access to a therapist, that is going to be number one. Um, and if it, if it is quite a dire situation, I would say drive yourself to the hospital, be very honest, get yourself checked in, get yourself treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, aside from that here in the United States, we have NAMI. I think it's the national Alliance for mental illness. NAMI. They're a great resource because there are a lot of community outreach programs, um, a lot of community funded support groups and things like that so that you can find something in your area um, and get some help. Thank you. Thank you. I know that that means a lot to people. A lot of my clients are in situations where they are utterly alone and are rebuilding communities. So that's so hard. Yeah, it is. Also, if you're listening to this podcast, reach out. Reach out to Sharice or to me. If you need someone to talk to and you're like, I need to talk now, I want to hear from you. I'm sorry. I just volunteered you. I should have asked you first. No, absolutely. Yeah. And please understand I'm not a like licensed social worker, therapist in any way, um, but I am very talkative and I'm a good listener. So yeah, yeah. And so we're here. We want to hear you. We want to, you know, we want to sit with you in and provide community for you at the very least so that you don't feel alone and so that you can voice what's going on for you. A lot of times that's one of the first steps for allowing yourself to process depression, process those thoughts that often put us in the really dark places. A lot of them are shame driven and shame hates to be spoken. It can't yes. survive empathy and it can't survive being vocalized, having words wrapped around it. So if you need to, my gosh, please, please contact us on our social media accounts, send us a private message and feel free to text or to send voice messages and just talk about what's going on. So it, it feels like a privilege to get to sit with you and to hear what you're going through. It it always makes me feel 
it always makes me feel incredibly grateful that you feel safe enough to mm-hmm. share that with me. It, um, sorry, I choke up with this. It, it, it means that it means that I'm showing up in the world the way I want to show up, that you would feel safe sharing something like that with me. And so please let both of us be a listening ear for you where you can vocalize your thoughts and where you can have them met with compassion and with empathy, because that alone will, will begin to lighten the burden at least a tiny bit while you're seeking more community, more support, therapy, whatever else it is that you need in order to address the underlying concerns underneath the suicidal ideation. Absolutely. Very well said. Thank you. Oh, I know we've covered some really heavy topics today, but these are important. They are things that many of us go through, many of us work through, many of us have experienced. And if we haven't personally, we often know people who have, especially coming from high demand religion, the atmosphere in high demand religion, the indoctrination that we can't trust ourselves, the culture that can feel unsafe so that we mask or that we put on a a pseudo identity in order to feel safe and to get our needs met. All of this can lead to mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And over time, the longer that we're living in this sort of cycle of putting on a mask and um, living in ways that filter who we authentically are, the the deeper those those problems can get. And I'm so glad that we were able to cover suicidal ideation and what to do if you know someone and also what to do if you are that someone that's experiencing that and that there is no shame and that there are resources and people who want to help. So thank you so much, Sharice. This was a fantastic conversation. And I feel like I learned a lot from you today. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I haven't had uh, I haven't had much of a chance to talk about this particular topic, so I was really excited. I was too. It whenever you said I'd really like to talk about mental health, I was like, oh please, yes, please, <laughs> let's talk about that. It's kind of a big deal. It's a really, really big deal, and the fact that you and I are both here with our own personal experiences with clinical depression or anxiety, as well as suicidal ideation, I think says a lot that we've got, you know, two people right here and we've had really, really similar experiences and probably know several other people who've had really similar experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's a big topic. So thank you so much for joining me today. And you guys, if you're not following the existential gender you need to because she makes amazing TikToks and (laughs) she's got a great sense of humor and she's super sarcastic, which I like. You don't get that much from me on the podcast. You get my coach side, but I'm wicked sarcastic. Like we are crazy sarcastic in this house. (laughs) We are really irreverent in this house. So you don't get to hear that very much, but I love her channel because she like speaks to my soul. (laughs) So Thank you. You're welcome. Head on over there. I'm going to put all of her details in um, the show notes. But before we do that, I'm going to let her tell you what her handles are on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. The girl's got so much good stuff to follow. I retweet her stuff and like share her stuff in my stories because seriously, it's really that good. So go ahead, (laughs) Sharice. 
You're so sweet. Thank you. I, I think you can find me anywhere by searching for the existential ginger. Um, I spelled existential wrong for the first two weeks that I had my Instagram. So if you spell it wrong, zero judgment. I think the only place that my handle is not the existential ginger is Twitter because it wouldn't fit. So it's existential ginge on there. (laughs) I love it. I had to do the same thing on Twitter. Emancipated Molly wouldn't fit. So I'm emancipated Terry over there. I wish they'd give you a couple more letters. Come on. I know. I was like, I wanted to be consistent and you're making this really hard. Yeah. Yeah, agree. Come on, Twitter, get with the program. Yep. So got to get that brand consistency. Come on. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, guys, go over there and follow Existential Ginger. Get your daily dose of just really great content about deconstructing and about healing and some really great laughs as well. <laughs> she also has a podcast. She has a I podcast. Do. Yeah. Talk about that for just a minute as well. So surprise, it's also called The Existential Ginger. Um, And it's basically just a more in-depth version of what I do on the socials. It's There's no roadmap. The topics are all over the place because that's how my life is. So sometimes I have guests on. um, A lot of it is deconstruction focused. But I just started season two. And we are going to get a little bit more philosophical this season. So we'll Mm. be... mm, We'll be exploring some big uh, life questions and what different philosophies, religions, and schools of thoughts have to say on those. Uh, Yeah. So I'm very excited and I'd be honored if you join me over there. Oh my gosh. I would love to. I love that you're getting more philosophical this year. It's funny. I just told my listeners in this week's podcast, I was like, so last year I had a plan for the whole year because I'm very type A that way. And I was like, and this year I've sat down with that several times and that's not going to happen. Like I'm getting a very intense feeling that the podcast is going to take me on a ride, not Mm -hmm. me take the podcast on a ride. Like it's going to tell me where it wants to go this year. So I'm just here for it. So here we go. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I can't wait to hear what podcasts you come up with and what great things you talk about because I do learn so much from you. And I'm so grateful for community of other people who are in the deconstruction zone and learning things. I feel like all of us together, we bring, we're able to bring value to one another and then value to our listeners and our clients and social media followers and all of that. And I'm so grateful for the community because, you know, when I left five years ago, when I left Mormonism, there was very, very little of that. There was the Reddit community and that was it. So, yeah, I remember being like, oh, there's these 40,000 people over on Reddit that I can listen to. And now there's all these resources. So I love being a part of that with you. Thank you. Same here. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone. And we will see you next week. I'd love to hear what you think about this on the Facebook group, which is Emancipate Yourself over on Facebook. And honestly, anything you want to bring up or any topics that this brought up for you where you're like, I need to know more about this, let us know. If you want to hear more from Existential Gender as well, let me know what questions you have for her. And maybe we will do another podcast in the future where we get to talk about those because I've had a lot of fun in this conversation. So we will see you next time.